Hey, Dan, what do you know about fintech? You know, Nick, not much, really. But you know who knows fintech? John Reynolds. John Reynolds knows fintech. My name is John Reynolds, the host. This week, we've got another fantastic guest. We are delighted to be joined by James Wise, who is a partner at the VC firm Bolton Capital, which has invested in the likes of Revolut and Go Cardless. And today, he's here to talk about his new book called Startup Century. So thanks a million for joining us, James. You're very welcome. For the listeners, I guess many of them might know you, but can we just get a a kind of brief potted history of your career to date? Sure. Uh, So as you mentioned, I'm a partner at Alderton. Uh, we're one of the largest venture funds in Europe, managing about four and a half billion dollars. Uh, and I've been there for close to 11 years now. Uh, and before that, I worked in uh, social impact investing, actually working with social entrepreneurs who are building startups, but most of them had a specific social goal, which is a fund I helped set up. Uh, and before that, I actually worked uh, for a number of different fintechs. I worked for another VC firm uh, and started off as a consultant. But my personal journey goes all the way back to when I was a teenager and sort of my first very first job after uh, being a pretty poor waiter in my local town in Greater Manchester uh, was building websites. So uh, using I think Dreamweaver 3 was a cutting edge piece of software back then uh, and building websites for a first generation of small businesses from local car showroom through to a laser company spin out from Manchester University and giving them their first online presence. Uh, so I've been tinkering with uh, technology for a very long time. Uh, and over the last 10 years uh, or 11 years at Boulderton, uh, I've been fortunate to invest in a very broad range of businesses uh, from, uh, as you mentioned, some some fintech companies. I'm very close to go cardless all the way through to uh, AI first businesses. OK, that's great. That's fantastic. So before we delve into the, the book, um, well, just just on the book, I guess it's um, I guess tech is a big focus of the, of the book. How conscious were you writing Startup Century that it had to be written quickly because i guess tech references can date quite quickly did, did you give yourself a timeline and how long did it actually take you to write yeah well i do mention sam altman as ceo of OpenAI, <laughs> and given it came oh, right. out this week that was quite yeah, a yeah, intense yeah. turnaround because the three days it already looked out of date obviously it's now very relevant again well no so you know taking a step back you know the book is based on two observations which are trends that have been around for decades So one observation is simply that more people are starting businesses than ever, whether that's a startup, like a fast-growing technology Mm. business, or working as a freelancer, working in the gig economy, or being self-employed. The number of people starting businesses and working in that way is close to record numbers. And certainly over the last 20 years, that number has accelerated, COVID accelerated it further. uh, And we're still seeing, certainly uh, in the US and other countries in Europe, record numbers of people moving in that direction. That's kind of a timeless observation, and the book covers that trend and why it's happening uh, in detail and basically covers why the firm, the traditional idea of the firm, where we insource a lot of support, whether that's sales and marketing, legal or accounting, is going the same way as the farm and the factory did for decades before that and being automated. But the second observation it's based on is that despite this growth in the number of people becoming entrepreneurs and working as freelancers and gig workers, the support structures that we offer people, whether that's education or financial institutions, cultural ones, are uh, still very much focused around people with stable careers. So try getting a mortgage or a pension when you are mm-hmm. Uh, a freelance worker uh, or trying getting banked by a traditional bank when you're starting a startup right even 
businesses that I work with, which in you know very fast growing technology businesses, often with lots of capital in the bank, struggle to get basic banking services because we have a society and a bunch of institutions which are still built around the idea that you're going to leave university and go into a career for 25 years and move up slowly. And so this book is for anyone who aspires not for the corner office, but to escape the office. Uh, and I hope provides both advice on how to navigate this fast changing world of AI, uh, but also hopefully some timeless uh, thoughts on the way that we can reorganize some major institutions to support entrepreneurs as well. Okay, that is a fantastic in-depth overview. So you touched on numerous points and I think I saw an, another interview, I think there's something like 5 million people self-employed in the UK at the moment. And I guess your theory is startup century, this is kind of continue to grow throughout the uh, century. And that's a mixture of uh, people um, doing um, their own initiatives and kind of having side hustles as well, is it, I guess? Yeah, exactly. And micro businesses, so small businesses of five people or less. And, you know, the, the, that's happening for a couple of reasons. So one is people are choosing to work that way, right? Interest in entrepreneurship is at record highs. If you ask parents now what they want their children to be, CEO of their own company is... Uh, the highest it's ever been, right? It used to be doctor and accountant or even uh, airline mm -hmm. pilot is now CEO of the business is up there. And if you look at especially younger people, once they've got through their phase of wanting to be a YouTuber or a footballer, uh, many of them now want to work in a startup or found their own business. So that's a really exciting momentum. Um, and so more people want to work that way, but also more people are going to have to work that way. Because if you look at the most productive and successful companies in the world today, they're employing fewer people. So actually, if you look at just the productivity of, let's take the S&P 500 businesses, how many people it uh, needs now for a and p 500 person business to generate a million dollars of revenue is getting uh, fewer and fewer. And if you look at the automation that's happening in factories with robots replacing individuals, I think Amazon now is at uh, three robots per person in the fulfillment warehouses. They want to get to eight. You know, I think if you, every direction you're seeing uh, fewer and fewer long-term stable careers and so people are going to have to work in uh, more entrepreneurial ways and that volatility in the way they work isn't going away that opens up opportunities for people but it comes with a lot of uh, challenges as well and the book is trying to describe those opportunities for entrepreneurs and how they can see them and how we might as a society mitigate some of the challenges okay that's very uh, interesting and insightful and just i don't know if it touches on this and i guess this is kind of a, an a, a age old question but this entrepreneurial streak, is, is that kind of innate? Do people have a, an, an entrepreneurial gene or is this kind of cultivated over time uh, through experience? Well, the book focuses on this a lot. And like what makes an entrepreneur, I think, is a really critical question. So I've covered a lot of the research and there's a lot of interviews in the book. And if you look at it, there is no entrepreneurial gene, I don't think. I don't think it's in your DNA, but certainly your upbringing and the role models you have around you does make a big difference. And if you look at almost any uh, data, uh, role modeling, so whether that's being part yeah. of an entrepreneurship course, having a family member or a family friend who's an entrepreneur, or even, and there's a great study of Denmark in this, even just working alongside someone who then goes off and starts their own business increases the likelihood that you will start a business yourself significantly. So role modeling makes a big difference. And then the types of skills that we offer to people makes a big difference as well. Um, experiences which improve your creativity, uh, heighten your level of ambition. Once again, that has a lot to do with the role models you're exposed to or increase your resilience. 
because entrepreneurship requires a huge amount of resilience, right? You're told no almost all the time. Uh, anything which increases creativity, ambition, or resilience generally leads to people being more likely to be entrepreneurs and also more successful entrepreneurs. And um, so the book covers that, but also points out that actually a lot of the educational institutions that we rely on today do not focus on skills like creativity or ambition or resilience. They focus on other types of skills, which are really important as well. Um, but if we're going to be living in a world of far more volatile work, uh, we will need to review how we provide opportunities to develop those skills. Okay, that's great. So uh, I kind of um, got ahead of myself. So just you've obviously done numerous interviews in this book and obviously this is a fintech podcast did you uh, and i know you've got endorsements on the book from the great and good of the business world like um james dyson and martha lane fox did you interview fintech luminaries any fintech superstars in the book uh yeah and certainly some companies like go cardas are mentioned uh because it's a business that i've worked with closely and i've known the founders for a long time uh and hiroki the ceo there was very kind to offer an endorsement as well and uh, has been integral in, in some of my thinking in this space. Uh, and the rise of financial uh, services competitors, whether that's the neobanks like Revolut uh, or it's new types of infrastructure, uh, are really built around the emerging number of people who need professional business services in a new way because traditional banks haven't served them appropriately. So this entire trend of more people starting businesses, running their own businesses, it has created, I think, already a new category of fintech and you know, being able to do your taxes, which you haven't done them before, or being able to manage a pension when you haven't you know, got a company that you work for anymore because you own it, or being able to balance your savings or being able to just, as I said, apply for a basic business account or loans or um, yeah, personal finance, mortgages, stuff like that, all of those things uh, traditional banks have failed to do for a new entrepreneurial generation, whether you are just a bedroom side hustler selling on Etsy or you're building a multi-billion dollar startup. And so the book focuses on some of the financial service technologies that have been successful in this decade, but really is about looking forward and saying, what are the kind of solutions that entrepreneurs will need? And I think there's still, we're just touching the edges of that, right? If you look at global financial transactions, and the book covers this a little bit, um, what we would define as modern fintechs still serve less than 1% of mm. global uh, flow of capital. So whether that's, you know, the biggest companies that do that, you know, companies like Stripe, or the huge neobanks like Revolut and Newbank, you, you put all that together, and it's still less than 1% of the total market. And so clearly, there is still a huge opportunity to build services that, that, that provide support to this emerging uh, new workforce okay that's great just going back you you mentioned revolute a couple of times just going back to my previous point point about the entrepreneurial streak i think i'm right nick staronsky prior the co-founder of revolute prior to setting revolute up worked at credit swiss and lehman brothers and i think again correct me if i'm wrong tom blomfield before monzo worked at starling so with your bolderton cap on i guess that's quite a common thing where entrepreneurs previously worked at a, a rival or a, a related business and then saw an obvious gap and thought, I can do things better. So sometimes having deep industry experience and a little bit of knowledge about a space, I think is really helpful. And that differs by uh, industry, certainly in heavily regulated industries and complex industries like financial services, it definitely helps to have a little bit of experience there. But actually the fundamental traits of the most I think most successful entrepreneurs mean that they may spend some time in industry, but they don't stay there very long. 
And if you look at the backgrounds of Tom and Nikolai, they're both incredibly competitive entrepreneurial people. It may not be uh, so much in their career. I think Tom initially starts off as a consultant. Um, he was when I first met him. Um, but in many other fields, whether that's sports, uh, whether it's in uh, on, just starting their own businesses very young, uh, you can see people who have like a very competitive drive and a huge level of ambition, which I think you can you can say is very prevalent amongst some of the most successful entrepreneurs. But you can find those traits embodied in many different ways. It doesn't have to be academia or your first career. Okay, that's great. And just on entrepreneurs, are we seeing any change in the demographic? I mean, um, I guess I would presume, and this is probably uh, a horrible um, a kind of assumption that tech entrepreneurs would be kind of well-educated and in their 20s and 30s and living in cities. But are we seeing a shift to perhaps older tech, uh, older people setting up tech companies? Have we seen any, any kind of changes like that? Yeah, so if you look at uh, self-employed, um, certainly in most high-income countries, the average age that someone first becomes self-employed is actually in their 40s, and they're generally speaking in what would traditionally be called blue-collar work. So the idea that everyone is a college dropout building multi-billion dollar software businesses out of Silicon Valley is a very skewed perception of what modern entrepreneurship is. In reality, it's people who are working in, tr in a trade uh, or in the construction sector. Uh, they're often in their mid-40s and they've done an apprenticeship and built a career in a certain specific area, maybe let's you know, take a plumber, for example, and they've decided to go it alone and set up their own shop. So that's most people's, that's the average experience of setting up a company and certainly has been for the last few decades. The you know, reality is that software is now playing a role in fundamentally opening up new markets for people, making it easier to get that first sale and start up a business, whether that's an online store, it's the ease of building a software product, or it's simply just the number of people online now that you can reach. You put all that together and it means that more and more people are experimenting this way. And so it is shifting the demographics in different countries. Um, many young people, uh, I think something like a third of Gen Zs in the US have already sold something online, uh, and that number's rocketing up. Um, and similarly, many older people uh, at the end of traditional careers are now saying they want to start a business, and they feel they can do that because it's become easier, and a big part of that's been driven by technology. So the book tries to define, um, uh, you know, provide a difference between technology businesses and people utilizing technology to run businesses both sides of those coins are very important uh, for venture capitalists like me obviously we predominantly focus on very fast scaling technology businesses that's our business model but that's a tiny tiny niche within the overall entrepreneurial space and in fact the business goes in depth into the need for debt and other kinds of financial services to support the vast majority of entrepreneurs who aren't on that journey for the people who are on that journey, on the sort of VC journey, actually it's disappointingly poor in terms of the uh, diversity of entrepreneurs uh, and backgrounds compared to the vast majority of people who become entrepreneurs, right? And if you look at it, the number of people who freelance in the UK, there's a much higher proportion of, of women in particular who freelance in the UK than there are venture-backed uh, female-led companies. Uh, similarly, in terms of academic background, there's a far more people who don't have strong academic backgrounds, who run their own companies, uh, uh, compared to the number of people who go on to raise venture capital with that background. You know, that's not, it's not like a, a, a universally, it's not a universal truth, and that's not going to be the case forever, and it's changing fast. So those two demographics are uh, becoming slightly more aligned. But I think in, in many ways, the venture community have lagged the overall, uh, and missed some of the overall entrepreneurial opportunities, partly because of bias in the selection process. 
Okay, that, that's great. That's very eloquent. So, if this theory, the startup century, so if we're going to see this continued rise of startups and micro businesses, what does this mean? Uh, perhaps I've got this completely wrong. What does this mean for the likes of big business, like kind of the big retailers, like Tesco and Asda and um, industries, which is the UK is very good at, like pharmaceuticals? Are we going to see the kind of gradual decline of these big industries in the UK? No, I don't think so. I think I think businesses at a certain scale who own distribution, uh, one of the reasons why more people are going to become entrepreneurs is because those kinds of businesses are going to hire fewer people because they're going to be able to say to themselves, well, you know, what we want to do is be the number one company for serving, let's say, fresh produce across the country uh, and, and we want a premium brand. To do that, you can now achieve so much with software and increasingly going forwards with AI, which, you know, whether it's a generative AI platform for language creation, so you've got better copyright for your products, or it's automation in the warehouse, which means that you can ship stuff faster. Either way, you're going to be able to do more as a large company with fewer people. So mm -hmm. the businesses which adopt those policies and adapt to it, I think we'll see higher margins over time. They may have an initial capex increase, but have a higher margins over time and being able to serve people that's you know very different to the way let's say walmart was built right the book covers the start of walmart walmart's philosophy early on was to have everything in house right they the way they were going to be the best by having everyone working for walmart to the point where in the 1980s they had the largest private satellite company in the world right which is a walmart company right they owned it outright uh, because they wanted real time communications uh, to manage their logistics and so they built their own satellite company and it's astonishing Today, because of the rise of uh, startups and the power that they have to leverage technology to provide services, you would likely outsource that. And the book goes into why more and more niche services are going to be outsourced. So the biggest businesses, the next generation of Walmarts, and you know, if Tesco's and Sainsbury's can navigate their way to be one of those types of scalable businesses, will have to define where do they want to win and mm. where can they outsource either to small startups or software other parts of the process. Uh, okay, right. Okay, that's fantastic. So just on the, on the bigger question about kind of, uh, I guess, government's aware of this kind of shift towards entrepreneurialism and startups. I mean, was there anything in the autumn statement? Did Jeremy Hunt, did he talk about this? Is it, are you impressed with what the government is doing? Yeah, so, so Jeremy Hunt did speak about this, right? He mentioned his own entrepreneurial journey. He did say this was a, a budget focused on entrepreneurship. And so there was some uh, lip service paid, which is great. And there were some policy changes, which is incredibly welcome. And I think if you look at what this government's done over the last 13 years, they have introduced a number of policies recognising this growing need to support entrepreneurs. Uh, so specifically in this awesome statement, there was the waiving of national insurance. I think it's level two for uh, freelancers and entrepreneurs, which is just a, you know an unfair flat fee. Basically, people were paying. Uh, so that will be welcome. There was the extension of the EIS and SEIS sunset clause, uh, which means that that program will be in place for longer. And it's been proven to be a great way uh, to get investment into very small and early stage businesses. Uh, and I think there's investment in a load of tech infrastructure, whether it be uh, expanded uh, investment into the spin outs or into AI infrastructure, which I think will enable more people to adopt technologies and therefore be able to run their own businesses. So that's lots of positive stuff. But there are still a bunch of hurdles to being an entrepreneur in the UK, specifically and globally, uh, which need to be overcome. And actually, the book at the back 
has a uh, entrepreneur's manifesto, which lists out okay. uh, a number of points across uh, different fields, which apply to most countries and you know, different countries on different speeds of journeys here, which I hope uh, future politicians may take a look at and realize, wow, if we really are going to serve a more uh, entrepreneurial economy and not just have a services economy, but it's an innovation-led economy, some of these points are probably going to have to be adopted. What's the biggest hurdle then, just quickly? Well, there's, uh, <laughs> there's, there's a plethora of issues, okay. right? Uh, you know, financial, educational, uh, okay. just the bureaucracy of running a small business. There's no shortage of challenges to be entrepreneur. You know, in my job, I speak to, I think, at least a thousand entrepreneurs a year. And these are people who are building high tech businesses. And I've been doing it for a decade. The number of barriers these people face are astonishing. And I think, you know, fortunately, enough people are ambitious and one might even say naive enough about the size of the challenge of starting a company that they go on to do it, which is great. Um, but there's no shortage of challenges. Okay, that, that's great. So where can, when did the book go on sale? Where can people buy it? How much is it? It came out in the UK uh, yesterday. So wow. like Thursday, uh, 23rd November, you can buy it online, uh, plenty of bookstores, uh, it will come out in Europe and the US uh, later in the year and early next year, but you can also buy it on Kindle and audiobook today as well if you want to get hold of it uh, outside of the UK as well. A good Christmas present. And are you going to, is this your first book or? It is. It is my first book. I've written blog posts and columns and uh, PDF guides to certain things. This is the first time I sat down and did the whole nine yards. Okay, that's great. So just very, that was very eloquent, very informative. Thank you for that. Just, um, obviously, this is a fintech podcast. So I just wanted to ask you a few fintech related questions. I had a quick look on YouTube. There's recently been the, the Web Summit in Portugal, and there was a panel on the future of fintech. And one of the panel participants, I think they may have been deliberately provocative, but they said that uh, fintech was facing the perfect storm on three front, uh, three front, three fronts. One was the challenge from uh, big tech, the likes of Apple and Google. Second was the challenge from kind of legacy and established financial services companies, which are, at the moment are cash rich. So are basically hoovering up all the best talent and all the kind of best startups. And thirdly, she said there was latterly a big kind of mistrust about fintechs in regard to the likes of demise of, of Wirecard. So I think she was perhaps being deliberately provocative, but do you think there's any any truth in that, in that statement? Well, I certainly don't put much uh, credibility behind the threat of Apple, Google, and Facebook, and financial services in particular. I don't think those companies, I think they may try, and I think these companies are, are able to innovate in the way great fintech entrepreneurs are. You know, for example the leading social media company in the world was Facebook. Well, they got out-innovated by Snap and TikTok in the last de decade, pretty easily. Um, mm. And, you know, the leading AI company in the world was Google until OpenAI turned up and blew them out of the water. So, you know, great startups and entrepreneurs will always find ways to succeed against big companies which are uh, distracted by you know, many different challenges. So I, I, I don't, you know, I, w I wouldn't put much stock in that. Um, in terms of sort of regulatory pressure, yes, there's rightly more scrutiny of financial technology businesses that have been broken through in the last couple of years. I think the regulator often gets this wrong. Uh, if you look at you know, the collapse of some of the regional banks in the US, very few of them were startups. Most of them were pretty uh, you know, old businesses that should have known better in the way they manage their um, services. But obviously, it's put a slowdown, in particular in the UK, on things like new banking licenses. Uh, and I hope that the regulator sees the growth in interest in financial services technologies and the uh, improved 
uh, approach, I think, that many of these companies are taking to uh, compliance uh, as a very positive thing. And so uh, picks up the pace in um, adjusting legislation to this new opportunity. But I think the, the, the final point, uh, which is, you know, well-funded competition in the banks, I mean, mm. uh, they're still a decade behind. And I think they're only falling further behind, you know, and the, the book really does focus a lot on, you know, the, the fact that we've had, as you say, sort of over 4 million self-employed people and freelancers in the UK. They're still terribly, terribly served in this country uh, and, and globally. Uh, and you know, one of the co-founders of the business I work with in the AI space, a business making millions of dollars a year, uh, well-funded, uh, told me just a couple of weeks ago he couldn't get a loan from his bank in Germany, a personal loan, which his employees could get, but he as the founder couldn't get. And uh, that attitude is still prevalent. So anyone trying to tackle that, I think, has got a, a strong opportunity in the face of uh, any kind of old school bank. Okay, that, that's great. Okay, that seems an interesting story. I just wanted to quickly, great to get your take. Obviously, fintech journalists have been writing a lot recently about a difficult funding environment vis-a-vis compared to how it was kind of three or four years ago when there's a lot cheaper capital. Um, I'm quite new to this area. Can you just talk about, with your Bolton cap on, how different is the conversation you're having with startups to what it was three or four years ago. I mean, I guess you're asking a lot more, you're looking for a lot more scrutiny, uh, financial figures about startups. How has that conversation changed from what it was when uh, cash was a lot more freely available? Yeah, so the overall funding is down in Europe. We'll see by the end of the year what the final numbers are, but I think it's trending towards at least 40% down um, year on year in terms of total venture capital deployed. And uh, fintech as a whole was the number one area of investment, I believe, in 2021 in Europe. Uh, It's now second or maybe third, uh, depending on how much more money goes into AI. So SaaS and AI will beat it uh, in 2023, uh, or will be very close at least. So clearly there's been uh, a reduction in the availability of capital, and in particular to fintech. Having said that, fintech is still the third largest area uh, in Europe and for all of the buzz around AI it'll be very very close to the amount of money raised by AI in Europe this year and secondly while it's down year on year it will be up on every single year in history for European venture uh, apart from 2021 and 2022 so we're still 2023 will still end up significantly uh, higher in terms of venture dollars deployed to fintech than um, there was in 2017 2018 2019 and, and I think 2020 We'll see when the numbers come out. So the the, the mid to long term message is incredibly mm. strong, right? There's more capital available. I think there's more people who are wanting to experiment with tools, and I think that um, you know there's lots and lots of positives in the market. Right, but how how else, can you just talk about? The, the, presumably, the conversation has changed because every time I, I speak to a, a startup CEO, they keep banging on about how they're heading or they've hit profitability. So presumably, you are having a different kind of conversation. Uh, well, look, I think we always try to invest in businesses which had strong unit economics and that's not changed too much uh what's changed is the valuations a little bit around that but once again we're trending back to a mean i think that uh, i don't i don't see i do see unit economics as increasingly important but they've always been important to us so uh, for me there's not any meaningful shift in the conversations what's happened is a load of tourist investors who perhaps didn't understand the market in the same way as we had because they haven't invested in fintech for over a decade um have left the market there's a bit less money as a result but overall i think we're in a uh, in a pretty good place um and it will feel harder compared to 21 
Uh, but I don't think it's any harder. In fact, it's still better than time than ever to start a financial services business or raise capital compared to where we were in 2017, 2018, and 2019. James, that was fantastic. You've been very eloquent. I hope the book sells uh, well. I'll still be reading it. And that's all the time we've got for this edition of Tech EU's What Do You Know About Fintech? If you've liked the show or not, go ahead and hit subscribe, like, rate us. We'll see you next time.